My name is John Schwartz, and I am with the Charter School Growth Fund. Um, I oversee the finance and operations practice area for the IMPACT team. Uh, we help portfolio members get better faster. The purpose of today's call is both to celebrate the end of the fiscal year with some like-minded colleagues. So again, congratulations, everybody, for begging it to 630. Uh, and hopefully to pick up some tips and tricks as you prepare for the heart of audit season from some of our veteran members of the CSGF portfolio. I'm going to go ahead and get us started. The first question is going to go to our friends at Aspire. But can you think of an example? You or your org chose to engage your auditors early and often. And tell us about how that benefited you come audit season. Hi, everyone. This is Paul. So uh, last year, fiscal year uh, 15-16, we chose to engage our auditors early on uh, accounting transactions related to uh, bond financing deals. We asked if they could provide any insight or guidance to booking the bond premium, extinguishing of capital leases, defeasance of bonds that were refinanced. This was relatively new guidance without, our, without an active CPA on our team, and it's often hard to get the latest gap guidance. In hindsight, one important factor that benefited us was the close of the bond transactions during the middle of the fiscal year. Had the close been in the last month or two of the fiscal year, we would have had hardly any time um, to close the year and record these significant transactions on time. There are hundreds of documents involved in several parties which make the accounting process quite slow. So answers don't come very fast. One of the biggest uh, pieces of advice is close your bond transactions in the middle of the year or the beginning. Another example um, of where we engaged our auditors early was in putting together an investment policy. Uh, we value their perspective and input in the draft that we put together. Having a, a perspective on determining eligible investments compared to other nonprofits or CMOs, and then we confirmed how investments will be reported in our financial statements. Um, it was very beneficial as we knew the auditors would ask about this at our year end. Lastly, I'd just like to say that um, we, we often, uh, our CFO and other leaders in our organization might manage our auditors during significant transactions. Karen, anything else you'd like to add or should we shift over to Kip New Jersey? I would just add that, you know, we've, as Paul has mentioned, we find it extremely beneficial to engage our auditors throughout the year and we feel like we have a good partnership with them. Um, and they're often very helpful um, and supportive as we work through um, and making sure that we get the accounting transactions accurate in our books. Um, Rupa, we'd love to hear some stories from Kip, New Jersey. So I actually think the example that Paul gave is incredibly relevant to us too. Um, in hindsight, as we had any sort of bond financing or complex real estate transactions, we sort of learned the hard way. It's a really good idea to get your auditors engaged uh, probably right before closing or right after you close, um, just so that they can get time to absorb it and sort of think through how they're going to test that transaction come year end. So wholeheartedly agree with Paul on if you have any control over the matter closing in the middle of the year is really helpful. Um, so in general, I try to think about what my auditors are going to ask about as well. I think sort of, again, as Aspire alluded to you, after working with your auditors a couple of years, you know what they're going to ask about. But if you have new auditors, you can also think about what you would be wondering about on any of the complex transactions that have occurred during the course of the year. So specific examples for us this year um, are that we engaged our our regular, our traditional CMO auditors on um, any sort of complex revenue transactions that we have. And sometimes it's as simple as we got 
really ambiguous grant documentation on one of the grants that we received. So sometimes I'll send that over or have someone on my team send it over to our audit team in advance or mid-year and just say, hey, does this seem like it's enough substantiation for you just to avoid any headaches down the road come revenue testing time? Um, along the same vein, when we had a change in structure of how our management fee was calculated, we knew that that was a large portion of our P&L statement. And so that way, because that change was coming, we wanted to get our auditors very comfortable with that and see what they were going to be testing for. And they were actually really operationally helpful in that matter as well. Um, the last thing I'll say is, any sort of anomalies that have come up in terms of internal controls testing, we um, don't have a very long track record of this. I'd say we just started testing recently, but we found it to be helpful to engage either our external auditor or um, our audit committee on that in advance, just to make sure that they know what we're doing if we have anything to remediate or that they just know how testing went. With my school-based auditor, I would say um, he's working off of a much longer sort of uh, esoteric audit program in the state of New Jersey. And so if anything changes federally that I'm worried about not getting rolled out correctly on the state level, I reach out to him in advance just to make sure that he's comfortable with the guidance that's come out. So for example, uh, we just engaged him on the ESSA requirements that came out on certification to see if we could get him to be comfortable with how the state was interpreting that federal guidance. Well, thank you, Rupa. We're gonna, we're gonna switch to a new question and come back to our friends at Aspire. Um, so again, uh, Paul, Karen, I'll let you guys decide who's going to take this one. But also in that same piece that we wrote with Delphine um, a few months back, we, we referenced a book called The Checklist Manifesto, uh, written by Atul Gawande in 2009. And in that book, they give countless examples of how regular use of checklists can literally save your lives when used in the medical profession. So I'm wondering if, Aspire, you can give some stories about how your organization uses checklists throughout the year so that the entry-related work is getting done correctly and regularly versus kind of incorrectly or, or inconsistently. So if you have some maybe before and after example or examples of sort of how you guys have started to use checklists, I'm sure our, our listeners would love to hear more about that. Okay, thanks John, it's Paul again. Um, being the assistant controller, uh, one of the big checklists that we use is, is uh, our monthly, quarterly, and yearly closes. And we find uh, these to be very beneficial um, given uh, our, small, our small accounting team and given that we have so much to get done at each uh, period end, it's an extremely detailed checklist of all accounting transactions is crucial. And I say accounting transactions, there's also uh, analyses that are involved with this process as well. Some of our entries are processed by our financial analyst team rather than our accounting team. So the, ch the checklist is helpful in a and a collaboration tool between teams in advance of our interim field work and our year end. We identify the owner of each on the checklist, and that person is responsible for following up with the person who is responsible for each transaction. So there's leaders in each in both the, the finance team and the accounting team, and each of the and each of those leaders will follow up with individual teammates on ensuring transactions are completed. We consider our checklist to be live documents. And so, for example, we would review in advance of our year end to determine what has changed at Aspire that would require the checklist to be updated. So we're constantly um, analyzing our checklist and um, determining whether um, there needs to be more detail added or there needs to be items removed. Um, 
and recently uh, we've added quite a bit. Um, and I think I think each year we add quite a bit um, in terms of new items to follow up on and revising um, items that are on our list as well. We found the checklist also to be useful in training of new team members and to help explain when each of our accounting entries need to take place. From our perspective, just really um, fluid is how we see our checklists. And I think that as Aspire grows and changes, we want to be mindful of like transactions that we have that we have done during the course of the year that might require us to add something else to the checklist or as Paul said, to remove something else. This also helps us sort of grow and to, to make strengthen um, the processes that we put in place during the interim and final audits. Yeah, I would really echo that. I, I forgot to mention at the outset of our call that before I joined the Charter School Growth Fund about a year ago, I was the VP of Operations and then Finance at Achievement First, which is a large, large network on the East Coast. And the onboarding aspect of those checklists, um, Paul, that really resonated with me because uh, we didn't used to have those kinds of checklists. We had folks who'd been around for a while that just kind of knew they had those checklists in their head, but then you have some turnover and we really wish those checklists were written down. So thanks so much for sharing that from Aspire. Um, Rupa, I'm going to come back to you and take you off mute. And uh, yeah, what what resonates or sort of how the checklists, are they part of what you guys do at Kip New Jersey? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say they've gone from non-existent to sort of okay to now actually working um, in a much better fashion in the history of my tenure here at Kip New Jersey. We were sort of suffering from the same, like, you know, the people that were closing the books every year just knew exactly what to do and then the list was in their head. And so um, we sort of started from a place of if we had any adjustments coming from auditors at all, making sure that all of those were being captured in our checklist and making sure that all of those entries are being addressed um, in a timely manner during month-end close or year-end close if that was more appropriate. Something that Paul and Karen said that I think really resonates is just making sure any checklist we have is a live document. We use Google Docs on our team, and I think that's what Aspire also shared out in the article Delphine wrote. Um, it just makes it the audit process is crazy and is really fast paced. And so if you can gather any insight and just make sure the whole team is on the same page um, through a checklist, it makes it a lot easier to get through. Um, I'd say similar to um, Aspire, I'd say we've tried to make the process fluid by incorporating some checklist content into our actual reconciliation documents. Um, I'd say one of the best checklists I even have for month-end close or sort of in order to book accruals at year-end is taking a comparative look at our financial statements. That always just helps me understand where there's been massive fluctuation or when something's um, gone wrong, and our CFO spends a lot of time looking at that as well. Um, there's also this AICPA checklist that I found a couple of years ago of the common mistakes in financial statement reporting that we've sort of like kept as like a double check. But beyond that, I'd say the entire audit process is controlled by what we call PBC lists. Um, it might be a Deloitte term or an auditor term, but it just means provided by client. And so we've been rolling forward this PBC list for several years now, and it helps us stay on track in terms of meeting all of our audit deadlines and closing out um, whatever documentation our auditors need for all of our big accounts. But also, you know, as we monitor progress during audit field work, we use this list to say we're 50% done or we're 75% done or there's a delay in this entity. 
Um, so that becomes really helpful. I will say I have this uh, different audit team that's not organized at all and has never provided me with a PBC list. And so my team has sort of created one for him um, using the audit program as well as just sort of like taking notes on uh, what we can expect from him. And this is an incredibly deep list. I mean, everything from like booking him a conference room because sometimes he just shows up for a surprise visit and um, keeping him on a schedule. And so I would say checklists, at least in the audit realm, for your auditors if they have any weaknesses. Happy Rupa, uh, that's great, and thank you. If you wanted to share that ASCPI list with me and also the um, the list that you created for your auditor that didn't have um, those sort of prepared that prepared by list, that I could share it with the group, yeah, uh, that'd be great. So you can just e email me that later. All right, I'm going to put you back on. I'm going to put you back on mute, and uh, we are going to switch gears, and uh, we're going to start with our friends at Uplift. So one of the other themes that I think we touched on um, in Delphine's article was internal audits and pressure testing. She used the term sort of doing dipsticks during the year to sort of just pressure test and make sure that things uh, seemed right. And if they didn't, to catch those, uh, those errors early. So um, Bessie, I'd, I'd be curious to know how that uh, resonates or doesn't resonate with you in terms of what uh, you do down at, uh, at Uplift and also, uh, Carrie, what you would have recommended from your days um, at Deloitte. You want to go first, Bessie? Okay. Well, um, again, being new to the organization, um, there wasn't a, any type of, um, I guess, parameter to go by other than just day-to-day -day and getting an understanding of the organization, the job responsibilities, the team that you have in play. And so um, my district, was, I, I had several of them. Uh, one that comes to mind is just um, um, we took, you know, very seriously is, is having some uh, accountability and maybe some um, policies and procedures around credit cards. That was something that kind of came to, into play for us this particular year, uh, just making sure that everybody is on board and had a good understanding of the importance of using the credit card, the backup documentation, what's required for receipts. And so when we saw that little dip uh, or a situation occur, we immediately um, performed our own internal credit card audit pulling all credit cards, looking at the use, and just came to the resolution that, you know, we just need to firm up some things and, and push out a different program. And so looking at being able to self-identify situations and handle them immediately as they occur uh, is very important. And we were, I think, uh, they can attest that we did talk with our auditor and just make sure we were handling it appropriately and, um, and they gave us the okay to move forward with what we were doing. And so even though you have a dip or you have a situation, um, those, I call them, I guess, pressure situations, or testing is basically to fortify and reiterate what you have or to come up with some more internal controls or procedures. Got it. Thank you okay. so much. And Carrie, what, resonate, what resonates mm -hmm. with you either from your experience at Uplift or just your experiences in, um, at Deloitte? Only my, only my very largest clients actually had internal audit departments, and sometimes people would think, well, that means we don't do internal audits, and that's, um, that's just wrong. Um, I, I agree with the uh, comments in the, in the blog post that it's good for every organization to do internal audit type uh, projects, and I found it helpful in clients, uh, particularly um, like with, with the um, audience here, uh, you know, one area I would highly recommend is in the grant administration compliance area. Uh, those types of, of errors in that area 
tend to have a lower threshold for auditor reporting. They have, you know, their their special reports on on grant uh, work, and uh, so it's more detailed. And it actually can cause problems with funding if you have too many negative findings. So I would certainly encourage the organization to do some procedures around checking to make sure that they have dealt with their grants properly and, and do that all you know, prior to year end so that uh, when the auditors come in and are looking at the grant activity, it's not too late to fix something uh, and avoid, uh, avoid findings. You know, clearly the organization can detect control problems or process holes or inefficiencies in process just by looking at uh, having a different set of eyes look at what's going on. Uh, so from a, an efficiency standpoint and an error prevention standpoint, I think it's important. Uh, consequently, I would say, you know, focus on past problems focus on areas of audit errors and other findings like control findings, uh, focus on complex processes, or focus on uh, where there's been changes in personnel to make sure uh, the new personnel are understanding what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, but I think there's great benefits to be gained by uh, doing some amount of internal auditing. I'll just quickly share some of my experiences at Achievement First, both when I was on the operations side and on the finance side, and then we're gonna pivot back over to Aspire. But we used to do these things twice a year called deep dives. So we had a finance deep dive and we had um, an HR deep dive. And at each campus at Achievement First, there's a director of school operations, and there were regional directors of operations who managed them, but you could still imagine doing this in other contexts. And we just said, listen, here are the things that the auditors are going to look, look for when they come in from a finance perspective. And we are just going to once in uh, early fall after school started and after there's been a lot of spending that occurred, just to make sure that our campus directors are keeping everything on file that our auditors are ultimately going to ask for. And we did the same with um, HR paperwork, again, in the early fall after a bunch of folks have been hired. And so we, we could check to say, okay, you know, we've got a new director of school operations. Maybe they didn't completely understand what the expectations were, but we caught it before the auditor did. And actually, we would come back, particularly with those campuses that had some in, um, internal audit challenges in the fall, and do it again in the spring before our auditors came. So. Again, those are sort of, we call those our deep dives. Um, so I am going to pivot back over to Aspire. Um, what are your thoughts uh, on this sort of internal audits and pressure testing question? Um, and John, um, a lot of our experience is similar to what you've just described, to be honest. So we've got an operations team, and they own, um, own the internal audit process. Um, we have 40 schools, as, as, um, as you know. And so what we do at the start of each fiscal year is we will assign a risk factor to each of our schools. Um, and those risk factors may include things like, you know, the school was not on the internal audit list last year, the school has a new principal, or the school had an internal or an external audit finding from the year before. And then based upon those risk factors, we determine which schools will be visited within the fiscal year, and that helps us prioritize our resources. Um, typically, um, our internal audit team will go out and, and visit the schools in sort of December, January timeframe. Um, and we have a cross-functional team with individuals from the operations team within our financial analyst group and from the finance team. And what they would look at are things that typically the auditors would end up looking at when they come out and do the interim field work. So attendance is a big one. Um, independent study, um, finance, so just looking at how cash is managed at the school site, looking at the after-school program and attendance there, student records and emergency preparedness. And so um, after we, after the internal audit 
been completed, there's typically a discussion with the principal and the office manager before the team leaves the school site. And then um, subsequent to that, the, um, the principal and office manager will receive a report of the audit findings with a due date of making corrections. Um, and typically, um, the report is is sort of laid out. I mean, we have a consistent format that goes out to all of the schools, and if everything and the findings are along the lines of you know everything's good, um, or is there an error? Is it an ad hoc error, or is it there's so many you know there's so many errors that it's actually the process that needs to be looked at, and so we will um, group the findings into one of those three categories. And then based upon the type of finding it is, then there'll be a due date by when the office manager will need to make corrections so that then we can, um, you know, we can make sure that we uh, our control processes are um, being refined. Um, and then later in the year, once the um, auditors share with us what of our school sites will be visited during the interim field work, we will then also coordinate back with our operations team to make sure that those schools and office managers are as prepared as possible for the audit. And we're also, you know, Paul and I will look to make sure that they have followed up on the audit findings if it was a school that we had visited as well. And um, the other thing that we do, which we find helpful, is that you know, we often have a number of new office managers, and so for more seat, we ask a more seasoned office manager to reach out to a new, newer office manager, so then they can just help share their experience of the audit and just help them get prepared as well, in addition to anything we might be doing here from home office. Um, and this year, because we've had a little bit of turnover within our operations team, we had a couple of um, the ops team join the, our external auditors during the interim field work so that they could better learn what the auditors tested, they could have a discussion around what the auditors look for, so then that will help us refine our internal processes and how we might want to shape our internal audit program going forward. Great. Thank you so much for, for both of you for sharing those things. So we're going to come back to Uplift, um, and we'll start, with, uh, we'll start with you on this planning question. Uh, at the beginning of each audit season, Idea Public Schools, um, who I know we've got some folks from Idea on the call today, they actually hand their auditors a calendar of what needs to be done when, from Idea's perspective, not from the auditor's perspective. So I'm curious to know um, what kind of a similar or related thing is that Uplift do to make sure that um, you're planning ahead um, so that there are no surprises for you or for your school teams. Well, one thing we always start with, with um, the findings from the prior year or the um, audit report from the prior year. That's always a good starting point in the event that we're not at the advantage of being able to provide an audit, you know, preparation. Uh, in some cases, we're just at the, at the point of this is what we need. It's nothing new every year. We know the PDC list is going to be similar, whether it's interim audit or whether it's um, field work. And so we can get ahead of the game in doing so and preparing for the auditor's arrival at that point. Being able to hand them a calendar, and, uh, we're not at that point yet. We will be next year. Uh, actually, um, put a little challenge out there with our internal auditor to be complete this year in the field work, and he's going to buy me a fake dinner. And so um, that's very aggressive on my part, and hopefully I won't be the one buying the fake dinner. But um, looking at where we are, where we, what we had before in, in the previous year, and building on that. So we're in the process of building what does our year-end process look like, um, before we get the PDC list, what do we need to go back to determine what is our quarterly process, what is our monthly process, who owns what. Uh, what I've started doing is just going from that perspective, starting with the end in mind and building backwards, as well as looking at here's our balance sheet account, you know, here's all of our chart of accounts, who owns what piece of the puzzle. And so that's where we are identifying um, 
there's our cash account. Who's responsible for managing it, reconciling? What does that reconciliation look like? Um, we are building checklists. I can't wait to read the checklist manifesto because that is very vital in our work. And so just determining, you know, who are the players, who are our partners, and we already know who the stakeholders are, and, and we know what we want the end result to be. So backing, walking backwards a little bit and just making sure that we have those reconciliations in place and we have the person responsible for that reconciliation and what is that review process? Where, when can we check that off? They've done. And then when do we go back and review it? We want to make sure that we have uh, timing in place as far as monthly. When do we receive those bank statements? How can we receive them sooner? Do we need to wait to the end of the month to do a bank reconciliation? We have activities. Maybe we can do something weekly. And so just developing that has been um, a great experience and, and just asking many, many questions, understanding who holds each piece of the puzzle, what is the other or out, outside entities or departments uh, uh, portion, and what do they play in making sure that we have what we need to end our day. We do, I do want to um, really express um, our partnership with our operating team, for instance, um, while we're developing calendars and de developing deadlines and assigning personnel, they have been very um, uh, proactive in just handling a small portion of our cash handling. Uh, we have, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming everyone has a student activity or enrichment account where you really need to, um, we're just the overseers or we hold the funds for others, but we still have a fiduciary duty to make sure um, that there's no liability placed on the organization. We want to um, ideally go out there ourselves and do cash handling uh, audits and make sure that we're ticking in time things off according to our narrative, according to what we expect. But when you can't do that, it's great to have an operation team that can handle that for us. And um, I was fortunate to walk into that situation where they, they told me, we got it. You know, we have um, audit, uh, cash handling audits that they actually audit themselves and have a checklist to um, compare with. And so that is always um, something to have. And it, it, that's, a, that's just a great tool to have that when you are short-staffed or when you are in your busy season that you have another counterpoint that can continue um, doing some prep work and carrying the load. Okay, what comes to mind for you either in your work historically with Uplift or your work at Deloitte in terms of um, you seeing organizations really be proactive and planning ahead with their auditors? Yeah. They I, aren't fire grills for, the, for their schools or for their, uh, their staff? Yeah, some, some of this is actually um, redundant with the concept of staying close to your auditors throughout the year. I mean, that's mm -hmm. one great element of planning, just, just doing that. You know, it was mentioned uh, about having a timeline that's given to the auditors. You know, I, that's very important, but you should see the company timeline. You should include the PVC list and when items are going to be delivered, you know, putting a date on that, getting the auditors to commit when they were going to do you know, various things about their deliverables um, and having both sides look at those timelines in detail and make sure that their piece can be done uh, given the timeline. I mean, sometimes if you give auditors schedules too late, then they don't have enough time to audit, you know, certain areas. So having both sides agree to the timeline is very important. Auditors should be... Um, Planning their audit work by prioritizing higher risk areas or areas that might have problems historically or uh, because of being complex. 
the entity can help by pointing out areas that are of concern to them. I, I so often, you know, hear the comment, I wonder why the auditors found that so late. And sometimes it's just because it, the error or whatever fell in an area that they didn't prioritize as a high-risk area. But dialogue between uh, the entity and the auditors can certainly help in, in identifying uh, areas that might need to be uh, attacked first in, in the audit. I think talking about you know any new or unusual transactions either throughout the year or definitely uh, prior to the audit, prior to year end, uh, is very important because uh, that tends to be an area of higher risk and higher amount of error. And also implementing new standards. I mean, there's several standards out there right now, the not-for-profit standard, the leasing standard, revenue recognition, um, you know, planning ahead for how that's going to be done, having touch points with your auditors as to the progress and maybe getting their input on the process. Most audit firms have roadmaps or have developed, you know, uh, publications on how to implement new standards. And so uh, coordinating in that area uh, ahead of time can definitely save um, headaches later. Uh, well, Carrie, let's stay with you for a second because the next question is on audit committees, which you have experience with from being on the audit committee at, at Uplift. So could you talk about what the partnership looks like between the audit committee or the finance committee and staff at Uplift and then any other sort of best practices you may have seen um, in your years as a partner at Deloitte? Yes, I have reported to audit committees and I have been on audit committees. So uh, you're right. It, it is a very important piece of governance. Um, it provides comfort to the rest of the board if you have a good active audit committee um, that's engaging with the auditors, engaging with management on the critical areas of financial reporting and internal controls. Um, you know, the makeup of the audit committee, it's important that they have the expertise uh, to be able to, uh, you know, have that interaction with the, with the auditors and, and with management in these areas. Obviously, they, you know, they need to be independent. You know, everybody knows that. Uh, but they provide a good intermediary, too, between management and auditors. Sometimes, you know, audits can get tense, and uh, sometimes you know, management doesn't understand what the auditor's doing, and sometimes the auditor's uh, maybe not doing their job the way they should be, and, and the audit committee can certainly assess that from an independent perspective. I think the audit committee can be a great resource to management, too. When management's trying to implement new standards or deal with uh, difficult accounting issues, again, our audit committee uh, well, we have three members and we're all accountants, uh, so we can give input and, and help with management. We can also help management understand the perspective of the auditor, which sometimes is helpful. Uh, you know, what are they trying to accomplish? Why are they doing this? And sometimes we can add it, help management understand what, what might be going on. Um, we try to meet throughout the year several times with management just to understand how they're dealing with the prior year um, uh, errors or, or uh, internal control findings. We want to meet with the auditors at planning to make sure we understand um, you know, their approach and what areas they think are the key risks. We want to understand, obviously, fees 
you know, the audit committee approves the fees. Um, we'll have closing meetings with the auditors, of course, at the end. The auditors have certain required uh, communications with the audit committee based on auditing standards. And, uh, and then during the audit, we oftentimes uh, meet with management if they're trying to resolve a matter that's uh, been raised by the auditors uh -huh. to try to, you know, help understand what the matter is and, and what management might need to do to a, approach it. And then as need be, we'll have emails or calls throughout the audit to understand the status and uh, whether the timing is slipping. Um, so an engaged audit committee, I think, is, is critical to the process and uh, beneficial to both the management and the auditors. Great, thank you very much. Well, Rupa, I'm gonna take you back off of mute and I'm gonna sort of give you a, a bit of a dealer's choice here. Um, so uh, if there are new things that you'd wanna add, um, specific things that you feel like are a little bit different that KIPP New Jersey does around that, we'd love to hear that, we'd love to hear that from you. And then I also know that we've talked about some finance systems related things. So we can either go there now or we can go there next. So other things to add on the audit committee front or you wanna go straight over to technology? Um. The only other thing I'd say for um, other folks on the call is when I first got to KIPP New Jersey, we didn't have a specific audit committee. We had a finance committee and we still have a really great finance committee that's incredibly helpful on the forward-looking financial picture. Um, and they always approved our audits and met with our auditors um, and were really instrumental. But as we got bigger, the need for having a true audit committee just became more and more um, obvious and so I was lucky enough to help craft the committee composition and I'd say if anyone doesn't have a committee out there I'd wholeheartedly agree with what Uplift shared in terms of you want to make sure that you have a lot of accounting expertise not just in one area but expertise in tax or forensic or operations and um, having that expertise on my committee has been incredibly helpful because it allows me to have another place besides my auditors or sort of standard guidance memos to turn to when I have questions or if I want another reviewer. Um, it's a really great pool of resources for me. Um, I would go so far as to uh, say, like last year, our auditors pushed uh, us internally really hard on the staffing structure of our accounting team. They made it very clear we needed additional resources. And so we had them help review job descriptions. Um, we issue about 10 990s at the same time. And one of our tax, uh, one of our audit committee members is a tax expert. And so I sent him our 990s and he helped review them with me. Um, we had individual calls to engage them when we got results of internal controls testing on our payroll cycle because that's an incredibly critical cycle to us and we wanted to get their adv uh, advice on how we could scale it and make it better. So um, I would just say if any of you are in the process of composing your committee, definitely think about diversity there. Um, and also something that Uplift shared around independence is incredibly critical. I'd say wherever I'm sort of feeling a little bit scared to ask for guidance on something that I feel like I should know the answer for, I just ask my friends who still work at Deloitte um, and I ask them often. Uh, we've had issues come up this year on recognition standards for expense on software as a service, or actually this is a nice uh, dovetail into your next question around these financial systems, John. We had questions about uh, amortization on the expense side of these software packages, which you know we used to capitalize over the years, 
when it was a server hosted thing that you actually had in your office. But now that everything's becoming software as a service, it's definitely changing things up and there isn't enough structured guidance, especially to nonprofits. It sort of comes out later. And so I frequently just reach out to friends that are auditors or um, work on technical accounting. Got it. Well, let's, let's shift over more to the finance systems piece of this. So I know that at KIPP New Jersey, you have over the last several years implemented a new a new sort of suite of uh, financial operations systems. I don't think that you did so primarily because there were there was audit benefit. But could you talk about what some of the side benefits have been of those systems from a sampling perspective and perhaps kind of decreasing the time uh, that auditors need to spend uh, on site for things? We'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, um, so New Jersey has incredibly stringent purchasing uh, laws and standards, and we have a lot of levels of approval and documentation that we need to have behind every single one of our purchases. So we definitely are 100% purchase order backed, and we need to keep all that documentation in a system along with signatures and invoices and um, all of the information about how the payment was rendered. So given that there's that much documentation required for every single purchase, you can imagine how much paper we were dealing with prior to implementing Coupa. Um, it was not a pretty picture. Our auditors were carrying around files that we never knew if we would get back at the end of the year. And it was just not, it was really messy. This year and the past two years, we've been able to give our auditors just an audit login and they uh, send me a list of selections when they need additional documentation, like a vendor certification. But for the most part, I just send them our check register and they pick all of their own selections and walk through them on their own. They'll send me their work paper in advance just so that I know what they're testing. But other than that, they have free reign over that system and it makes expenditure testing incredibly easy for me. Uh, that's helpful. And that really resonates with my experiences at Achievement First. I know everybody is different in terms of how centralized or decentralized their audit-related work is. But at Achievement First, when we had paper-based, we just didn't have these systems. The auditors were literally having to go around uh, from campus to campus. Not only did that add expense to the audit process, but then you've got to coordinate um, so the auditors just aren't showing up randomly at the campuses. And, and so the, the directors of school operations have appreciated the systems on a number of levels, but one of which is that the auditors just aren't on site um, in the way that they were before. So that really resonates with me. Um, we have about five to 10 minutes left and we're starting to get some great questions come in through chat. So I'm gonna start pivoting to those. Um, and then uh, if, you, if you've got a great uh, answer to one of those, uh, please just chime in as one of our panelists. Otherwise I'll, I'll just do some cold calling or signing. So uh, Dean has got a question that says, what do you do to stay on top of changing regulations? I've had schools get audit findings from something that used to be acceptable that all of a sudden no longer is. Um, how do you do a proactive inquiry during the year to find out what's changed? So if someone sort of an answer leaps to mind from my panelists, uh, let me know. Uh, otherwise, I will, I will just call on one organization. All right, well, let's hear from our friends at Aspire. So Karen, what comes to mind for you there? Same, same challenge for you, or do you have something that you're doing that you think helps with that? Um, well, I certainly think that regulation, you know, not a lot of regulations changing a lot of the time that we need to stay on top of. Um, what we do as for like every year as part of our engagement with our auditors is to just relook at the state audit guidelines in particular and look to see what has changed and what is new and have a proactive conversation about that. Like, for example, the immunization guidelines were new last year. 
and um, we did end up actually having a finding, but it is then important to be more proactive this year in following up on. Um, so that's certainly one thing that we would do as, as soon as the guidelines come out to just make sure that um, we're reviewing, see what language has changed. Yeah, and then uh, we apply that to our internal audit. So any changes uh, that we that we uh, across, we follow up with our internal audit team and make sure that um, if it's necessary to add it to as a part of the, the checklist for the internal audit uh, follow up, um, that it's um, you know communicated to the team and it's followed up upon. So yeah, the, the state audit guide is a huge um, is, is a huge part of being prepared for any changing re regulations. All right, we're going to switch gears to another one of our questions. And Carrie, I can already tell you this one is, is coming your way because I think you're in the best position to, to give an answer on it. So what do you do when you disagree with your auditors on their testing approach or on their guidance and interpretation? And also, what do you do when you feel like you've gotten to the end of audit season or you've gotten to the end of uh, kind of one or two years with an auditor and you just don't, just don't feel like that auditor is the right auditor to, to, to work with anymore? I know that can be a really fine line. So you've been on so many different sides of this. You know, how would you approach a situation like that? Well, you know, the, if you disagree with their testing approach, that can be a little bit delicate because technically the auditors, you know, have to determine how they want to audit and what they want to audit uh, to ultimately issue their opinion. But I think, you know, the entity can certainly make suggestions if they feel like uh, the audit firm isn't finding the best source for information. Um, and if there's other ways they could go about their work more efficiently, I think in terms of of um, suggestions that are more like an informative type of suggestion as opposed to trying to tell them what to do, um, that can that can be very beneficial. And and I would say a good auditor should listen because they don't live in the organization year round. They may not be aware of all the sources of information or or what exactly they they need to do their work. So uh, I would I would say that that's um, kind of way I would approach that. In terms of guidance, um, I don't know what's specifically behind the question, but if it's accounting literature, well, there's certainly a finite amount of literature. I mean, you can certainly sit down with them and go through it, and and um, if you end up agreeing to disagree, then then I guess you know ultimately you have to, to weigh whether or not it's going to cause a an opinion modification. The um, you know the audit committee comes in very handy when in, term, in terms of assessing whether or not you have the right auditor because you don't want to change just because there may be uh, a disagreement. But if clearly the organization has outgrown their auditor, like we had happen at Uplift, or you uh, feel like um, you know you're just not getting the attention. Um, yeah, the audit committee should be uh, listening to management, making their own assessment. And if you're not getting the, if management's not getting the attention, the audit committee probably isn't either. So you can certainly go through an audit uh, auditor selection process. You don't want to. I don't wouldn't say you'd want to do that frequently, but but occasionally it's certainly appropriate. We we changed from a local accounting firm that was with Uplift from day one. We clearly had outgrown that organization. The partner that was on our account was retiring, and there was a change occurring, and we felt like we needed to go to a, a larger audit firm. We ended up with a, with a firm that was a large local uh, Texas firm, not, not even a national firm or definitely not a big 
four firm. We didn't need that, but we're very happy that this firm is doing a good audit. So I'd say engage your audit committee if you are having difficulty. And like I said, if your audit committee has audit background, they might can help you sort through the, the situation as well. Got it. Thank and you so I'm much. Like, Ruba, I'm going to come back. Oh, go ahead. I would also um, add just recently, um, just having an understanding and having um, a meaningful, uh, thoughtful way of how you're handling a situation, for instance, with our purchasing guidance. Um, we had a discussion with our auditor just yesterday. Um, she was just trying to give feedback on a threshold and why we didn't uh, follow a $50,000 threshold for purchasing, and we chose to, to follow a higher amount. And so uh, our CFO was able to give a, you know, a meaningful, thoughtful way of this is why, this is, you know, our guidance, and, and, and move forward with that. And after explaining that to her, she really understood. And we had policies that back that decision as well. And so uh, just having those conversations, um, when they challenge you is to be able to um, bring the evidence and the solution and the resolution as to why we did what we did uh, made, made sense for her as well. So just having that clear communication, understanding of what your policies and procedures are and understanding what you can and can't do um, as, a, you know, as an entity helps as well. Thank you, Bessie. All right, well, this is going to be the last question, and, and Rupa, I'm actually going to try and keep your answer on the shorter end because we're, we are just about at the hour. But another question we've got is, you know, what do you do to mitigate the loss of historical knowledge year over year with new audit staff or new accounting staff at your organization? So what experiences have you had when kind of all your staff stayed the same, but there was a new audit partner who was involved? Um, what comes to mind there for you? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the number one thing that we've been doing over the years with our auditors, the staff have changed a lot, but luckily the manager and partner have stayed consistent, um, is actually trying to get copies of their work papers whenever they're willing to share them with us and keep them as the basis for our work papers and our reconciliation so that we know what types of documentation or evidence they're looking for. So that way, when a new staff member comes in, they're ready to go and they're not surprised. Um, we definitely get all of their grouping guides and adjustment guides at the end of the year and make sure that we're plugging directly back into their trial balance format so that there's really not as many historical knowledge questions coming up. We do like leave our own tick marks and our own work papers and try to be helpful um, using like the fact that we have former auditors on our team helps, but that's, I'd say the number one thing we're doing. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Well, um, thank you to all of our panelists uh, for joining us today, and, and thank you for, gosh, I think we had about 30 folks um, on the call today, so thank you for all of you for taking some time on the last day of the fiscal year. I know it's a busy time of year, and uh, it's been great, and we're going we're gonna to shut it down right now, but you can, uh, I'll, I'll share out both the video of this call and also some of the artifacts that were discussed, and uh, we look forward to having you on future similar calls in the future. So everybody have a great 4th of July, and thanks again for being with us today.